0: Welcome again to the Unified Trust Under the Hood podcast, where we attempt to unpack, uncover, and illuminate financial planning and investment-related topics. I'm your host, Kevin Avent, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Team here. And today's topic is one that impacts each and every one of us in our daily lives, really whether we know it or not. It's a topic that's been written about, discussed, talked about quite a bit, I think, especially over the last four to five years, but also one that I don't think really people know a whole lot about and really what to make of it. Our topic today is commonly referred to as AI. And I'm not talking about AI in terms of how we may have defined that back in college. I'm talking about artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is something that Hollywood might lead you to believe is really sort of science fiction. Like when you think about the Terminator movies, that robot, Skynet, or something like that. But the reality is really it's nothing like fiction, and it has been going on for decades. And in fact, as I've researched this, much of the mathematical work underpinning AI has been going on since the 1950s. But the problem is really that technology hasn't been there to actually realize implementation for many of the applications for it until now. That's why AI is rapidly expanding into nearly every facet of our daily lives and why we felt like it was a topic that we should discuss in our podcast today. Um, just some of the stats alone kind of grab your attention. AI is expected to add about $15.7 trillion to the global economy by 2030. Machine learning companies have seen venture capital money flow in at a rate of almost 5 to $10 billion per year. So obviously, this is something that we should be aware of and know a lot more about. And luckily, I have a couple of guests here today to help us sort of understand and unpack what artificial intelligence is and really what it is not, how it affects people in our everyday life, how it impacts the world of finance and what, in particular, Unified Trust may be doing about that. And is artificial intelligence something to fear? My guests today are Mr. Billy Lanter, one of our senior fiduciary investment advisors, and Mr. Mike Sanford, who is our digital advice manager. So, Billy and Mike, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: So, why don't we start with what artificial intelligence is, and maybe more importantly, what it is not. So, Mike, being our digital advice manager, why don't you tell us what AI is?
2: You know, AI is, is certainly a buzzword these days, and it's technology that's becoming more readily available, certainly commercially, within the past couple of years. But as you kind of pointed out, AI is still somewhat science fiction to an extent that people have this perception of it as this omniscient technology that's able to you know solve any puzzle and teach itself. But really, that area of AI, the machine learning, deep learning, is still very much an academic pursuit at this point. There are avenues for companies to get access to this technology to work on proof of concepts, and you do see the technology deployed most often with larger companies, you know, are going to bring with that the, the budget and money to invest in that technology. But it is very much an academic pursuit. Most of what you see today, you know, when you talk about automation and efficiencies, is really intelligent automation. And, and that really is just the automation of fairly basic database processes, uh, workflows. Certainly there is a lot of intelligence written into that. You know, All of this is programmed by human beings with, with the knowledge and understanding of the processes and workflows that, that are being automated. Uh, but that next leap of getting to a point where the technology really governs itself is still off in the horizon.
0: So let me understand. I want to make sure we understand what what you just said there. (laughs) Artificial intelligence is is machine learning, meaning that, yes, humans program machines, but um, artificial intelligence essentially allows computers to go out and grab large amounts of data. And identify patterns. I guess AI is really good at pattern recognition if it does nothing else. And that's the machine learning part where we might be able to to really sort of expand our brain power significantly because the machines are recognizing patterns that maybe one or two or six humans couldn't. And that's the machine learning part of it. But intelligent automation is really what a lot of things that we experience today is in terms of making things a lot easier and a lot automated and a lot more efficient, but it's not necessarily machine learning. Is that what I heard you say?
2: Yeah, it really kind of boils down to what is the problem or challenge that's being solved. And what you see today is very sophisticated computer systems, intelligent computer systems that have now have the processing power, computing power, to answer very challenging questions. But the distinction is who's defining what the question is, how many challenges is the system answering. You know, deep learning, machine learning is, is really taking it to a point where the machines themselves can start to ask the questions and, and provide the answers without having uh, to be given a specific prompt to solve for
0: That might get into uh, one of the questions we said from the top, which is, is this something to fear, which we may touch on a little bit later, because I've... Read a little bit about the deep learning and like the deep fakes that are out there. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it. But OK, so I think I understand the, the difference between sort of intelligent automation and, and artificial intelligence. One of the things that has struck me about the AI is because it's machines is there's no fear of failure. AI can be stupid and be willing to fail, whereas I think humans, for the most part, I have a fear of both of those things. You know, we don't want to look stupid and we don't want to fail. But when we're programming computers to do it, and, and they're trying to figure out recognize patterns, and uh, computers are trying to figure out a better way to, I don't know, bake a cake than a human could, they might come up with you know millions and millions of iterations of that in, until they figure out uh, the best way to do it. And along the along on the, along the way, there's a lot of failure and a lot of stupidity.
2: Well, computers have the computing power to fail, so, um, you know, if, if a human sets out to conduct a complex analysis, there's, you know, the scientific method. You, you state a hypothesis, you test it, validate the results, uh, you know, test whether they're significant. A computer is able to do a, a ton of iterations and of, uh, calculations on the fly in you know, microseconds uh, at a level where humans really can't, can't replicate that. In that respect... There is more capacity for the computer to fail to arrive at the correct answer. You know some of the ways that you see artificial intelligence being implemented today uh, might be for fraud prevention. Uh, larger banks might use AI technology to analyze hundreds of thousands of transactions that uh, any individual or even team of individuals uh, might take weeks or months to analyze to to develop patterns and, and to build a model when the capacity, the brute force, you know, strength and computing power of the AI system is able to go out and analyze that information much faster and spot patterns that aren't able to be seen, certainly not as fast as, as the human. How
0: about how it impacts all of us in our daily life today? So let's think about, for instance, Alexa or Siri or smart cars. You know, I think about this morning when I got up to come here. I've got a Echo device. I have a whole routine that when I say, Alexa, start my day, she goes through a whole routine of delivering me traffic pattern, weather, news, Bible first, like a lot of different information. It just goes in sequential order. Is that an example of artificial intelligence?
2: Well, one funny example, I think, uh, (laughs) we have a Chick-fil-A located very close to our office here. So if You know, I just need to go and grab something quickly between meetings or I just get out of the office for a little bit and grab something quickly, i often go to Chick-fil-A. So Apple has recognized that pattern. And and a lot of times when I leave the office at 11 o'clock, even if I'm going to the other building or wherever I may be going, 11 o'clock, 11.15, when I leave the office, it'll automatically pop up and tell me I'm five minutes away from (laughs) Chick-fil-A. You know, it's it's analyzing. That's a,
1: that's a lot of Chick Fil A eating, Mike.
2: That's a lot of Chick Fil A. I'm a big fan, but you know they're they're you know crunching the numbers. Uh, you know, they have access to all that data for all their users, and they're able to detect these patterns uh, in a relatively unsupervised manner. Of course, their programmers are telling the system uh, what to look for, you know what answers to provide, but. That is an artificial intelligence application where they're able to then take that and actually make recommendations or suggestions to you based on the patterns they've detected. Sounds like Chick-fil-A needs AI
0: programming for you when you get there, but they should anticipate that you're going to get there at 1136.
2: I actually think every fast food restaurant should install sensors, cameras to detect you know, there's no reason I should pull up to a drive-through or, or whatever it may be, and they not know what my license plate is, what my order history is, and be able to recommend not only things that I typically order, but things that they may think that I would like based on preferences of similar customers. That's another you know large area, large application of AI uh, technology today is is making recommendations for uh, products and services. So you know that's something that Large chain like a McDonald's or or Chick fil A could easily implement and you know then you don't have to come up to the the board and be presented with four panels of indistinguishable you know, options consolidate right down to what you want and
1: uh, do you get to a point where you don't even need someone's in there making the food in theory not a robot but based on what you just said you could go through Chick fil A get food and leave and never interact with a human being absolutely yeah right yeah. The Netflix example I think is interesting, too, with this. The Stranger Things series that's been popular, based on your viewing preferences, they had, how many was it, like seven or eight different... Different, yeah. uh, Intros and promos. Yeah, intros and promos that that would advertise the new season of Stranger Things and promote their program. But the version you view is different, possibly, than the version I view, based on not our geography and and those types of things, but by my specific viewing patterns versus your specific viewing patterns. Do you like horror movies and things that are a little bit more graphic in nature, maybe, in terms of like a horror movie would be? Do I watch more family-oriented shows with my kids that are going to show one being more of a a kid-friendly, family-friendly environment, and the other one would have a totally different take on the same show? That is interesting of being a little bit creepy where... It's, and we absolutely live in a world now that the way you experience your world is different than the way I experience my world, even though we're both in the same place because machines are learning our preferences and our habits and actually creating a world that is catered to your preferences. And so my experiences are different than yours based on nothing more than my preferences are being shown to me and your preferences are being shown to you and neither of us are none the wiser of it.
2: Well, and not only that, but that's the consumer side of it, where we're consumers of the Netflix service or whatever streaming service you might use. And it experience is tailored based on those preferences and their analysis of you as an individual and as a consumer. But the other brilliant aspect of that model for Netflix is that drives what content they're producing. So not only do they know how to present something to you in their user interface, if you're going to tend to want to see something a little bit cleaner, more wholesome, or something a little more violent based on your viewing history. But it dictates to them how they should invest their money producing original content. And that's really the platform for Netflix being digital where you can go on and stream films or or TV series was really what opened them up to being able to analyze that. And that's when you really saw the proliferation of their original content is once they were able to start collecting that data and it, it guides what they actually produce and maybe biased but I think Netflix does tend to produce pretty good original content no, and, no and they can and, and also the velocity of it I think is pretty amazing too they're able to crank stuff out pretty quickly yep. and then certainly they have the mechanism to recommend that to you and get you to actually view it but even what they produce is informed by very intense and, and uh, Personalized analytics. Yeah, there's the market research, but
1: what the the preferences component just feels Truman Show esque to me, if you will. The classic Jim Carrey movie, of course, but his life was fabricated before him. You know, we talk about Netflix, talk about showing up at Chick fil A. You already know what I want, and you've got it ready for me when I get there, based on nothing other than I showed up, mm-hmm. and and life catered to you, which you know again reminds me of just Truman Show. Is now not entirely possible, but actually being created.
2: Yeah, I mean, you you pull up to Chick-fil-A, and there's a line of 20 cars, and they know based on your car and that you're in there that there's a 70% probability that you're going to order an 8-count nugget and a Diet Lemonade. They, that's enough of an indicator to them. They can go ahead and start firing that up. And have Is it that rain. your go-to? <laughs> <laughs> that's my go-to.
1: You
0: know what, though? This, this whole AI thing makes us... It bit myopic, doesn't it? If the whole concept is pattern recognition and they uh, sort of know what we want to consume and, and put things in front of us that we want to consume based on that and preferences and so forth, where's the diversity? You know, where's the, and this obviously plays into, you know, some of the things we've seen in, in the media about Facebook and politics and political ads and I'm sure all the other social media platforms as well that are putting content in front of you that they know that you're going to consume. Not a differing viewpoint. That, to me, is, is a big weakness of all this, right? Because it just further polarizes people, you know, further maybe entrenches people in their view of the world. And it doesn't have to be politics. It can be just anything, because that's what the machines are catering to. Is that fair to say? Potentially.
1: While Mike's thinking, I would say, I think that's 100% true. That's my opinion. I think the polarization we've seen on multiple fronts, anything controversial, by design, Twitter is like this, but certainly from an AI, I can choose to only follow people that I agree with. And when that's how I'm consuming news and media and culture overwhelmingly, either I'm choosing it or AI is choosing it for me, as I said earlier, it's entirely not only possible, but very likely that the world you're living in is fabricated to you. And the news headline I heard today is different than the news headline Mike heard today, possibly, because of what piques my interest and what piques Mike's interest. And so, in my opinion, yes. How can I come to an understanding of Mike's view of the world, and how can he come to an understanding of my view of the world when we're consuming different worlds?
2: I think the the term that comes to mind for me is curation and and as things become aggregated, that's what you're going to find is is everything around you is going to become more and more curated to you at an improving rate of accuracy as this technology becomes stronger and more powerful so but it's, it's just, just the deep. beginning
0: of my so how about? how it's impacting the world of finance. We've seen artificial intelligence creep into certainly the investment management and in, uh, in finance world. And the term that you hear the most is, is robo-advice, robo-advisors. Not everybody probably knows that term, but, but certainly we've heard a lot about it over the years. So how is artificial intelligence really impacting uh, the financial world?
2: So as digital advice manager, one of the programs I oversee is our managed account solution uh, for retirement plan clients called the Unified Plan. And that's a system that is, you know, is robo-advice. It's something we've been doing for a decade. Actually, we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary this month. But what you see with the Unified Plan is intelligent automation. It's not AI, but it's a robo-advice engine that's able to give individual-level advice to retirement plan participants in a manner that is a closed-loop feedback system, meaning you know a thermostat would be an open-loop feedback system where you um, use the, the sensor decide it's cold in the room, so you turn the thermostat up to heat it up, and then you eventually decide if you're hot or cold based on that adjustment, and then you go back and make the adjust, adjustment. But a closed-loop is a system where it is able to, to self-regulate and, and introduce new information to make new decisions and recommendations uh, based on that new information itself. And we implemented that 10 years ago, and it's been a very successful program for us. But it's not quite you know artificial intelligence. It, it is very much uh, the automation of intelligent investment, automated investment processes, but it's not artificial intelligence you know, one of, the, one of the, I think, great opportunities for unified trust with artificial intelligence in a robo-advice environment is in the area of QA, quality assurance, quality management, where, you know, at time's very difficult to go in system-wide when you're dealing with so many data points and identify anomalies in the data. Uh, any automated system is going to be very much dependent upon the inputs that are fed into it, and we get inputs in that case from a variety of clients spread right around the country and we get you know different data from different clients. So having an AI system that would be able to go in and analyze the data, mine the data to identify anomalies and correct them uh, is, is certainly an application, you know, a potential application for AI technology in our practice. Some of the things that we're currently experimenting with and developing are smart banking, which we Actually, just released a, a couple weeks ago. You know, right now, I would say that's that's a weak AI process, possibly even more intelligent automation. But that's something that can develop over time, uh, based on a, you know one of the most common applications of AI that you see out there, which is natural language processing. So you can text a code to our text number. And it'll give you your account balance. And expanding on that as the AI technology becomes more commercially available to leverage natural language processing will make it to where you can have a much more natural conversation through that application in an automated fashion as well. So would that be chatbots? Yeah, chatbots. You know, they're, they're varying degrees, I'm sure you see, when you've used them yourself. But natural language processing. Uh, I've, I've heard some people refer to that as the next space race to really nail down essential for communication. Clients of financial services interact with their, you know, trusted partner a number of ways. It might be a face-to-face meeting. It might be over the website, uh, online experience. It might be through an app. We just retired our voice response unit. We had clients on the retirement plan side who would call in and and get their account balance over the phone. They interact a number of ways, but the best way to communicate is through voice, face-to-face. And certainly the more intelligent systems can become, the more uh, refined natural language processing becomes. It will never replace that one-on-one human interaction and, and the benefits of that, but it can provide a very simple exchange of information between people when it becomes truly informed and, uh, and refined. And, and that's what you see with your you know, your Amazon Alexa's and, and your, your, right. your personal assistant, Siri, and, and so forth.
0: Right. So what I'm hearing you say is that it certainly is important from quality assurance. And also, I read this the other day, QAs along these same lines, cost savings. I saw a stat that it was like estimated trillion dollar savings in the investment banking and insurance worlds potentially AI could realize a, that much of, of cost savings. and then also on the experience side, right So how the client or participant advisor experiences our delivery of services and we're trying to make that as easy and efficient and also uh, what's the right word I'm looking for desirable I guess as possible you know by leveraging that technology basically, which yeah. is an upgrade it's a better experience than what they what they have today.
2: When I give presentations to some of our uh, advisors and in the industry, oftentimes I'll touch on a concept called the economic value chain. And what that is is basically, you know, for the economic value of a product or service begins with a commodity. That commodity is then refined into a product, which can then become a service. And then more recently, the focus has been on experience. And that's what you're referring to with the quality of the user experience and relationship between the client and the financial services provider. But I think more so as as you see more digital technologies being leveraged, you can add a layer to that value chain of attention. And that's really gonna be the name of the game is leveraging AI and these, these powerful technologies to do all of the complex analysis and problem solving and even to an extent communication for some of the, the more basic you know aspects of what a client might be dealing with just access to information is making that as easy as possible so that we can help people manage their attention spans you see a reduction in, in the amount of time people you know it's convenience they want to spend less time booking a trip so now they can go to an online travel agency and it's a very fast process. You can filter through a ton of data very quickly, and you can make a decision probably a lot faster than you've been able to do in the past. So helping clients limit the attention that they need to spend on it. Of course, if they want to dig deeper, you always make that outlet or avenue available to them, and, and certainly not unusual. That's that's common. But having these technologies like natural language processing gives us the ability to help clients get access to information as easy as possible on their terms when they want it.
0: So I think we've covered what it is relative to intelligent automation and some ways that it does have an application in our everyday life and certain ways that it might have applications in finance and it is today. How about fear? Should we fear artificial intelligence? Is it going to overtake us someday? I don't wanna to get too dramatic about it, but you know, some of the things that I've read and some of the you know, documentaries that I've seen about it, it can grab your attention really quickly because if AI is pattern recognition and essentially it allows us to overcome as lim- limitations of our own brain power, sort of like steam and electricity, inventions that overcame the limitations of our muscles. You know, before that we had to just use sweat And muscle power to do things and when you had those types of inventions it really overcame those limitations AI seems to be this invention that's going to overcome brain power limitation if we program these computers to recognize these patterns and they recognize them better than a conglomerate of humans could ever do eventually they're gonna recognize the patterns to the point where it's a threat to the human race Again, I don't want to get too dramatic about that, but but what are, I guess, some of the fears that are healthy fears that we should think about when it comes to artificial intelligence?
1: The biggest question I, that I come to in this, and I'm probably much more skeptical in this camp, but can machines learn morality? And... I'm not going to try to answer that here, but I think what you're asking is a moral question in some ways and an ethical question of recognizing patterns and making choices based on perceived preferences is not the same thing as knowing Mike. I can know that Mike likes eight nugget count with dot lemonade, but that doesn't mean I know Mike personally, right? And we get into a situation where knowing someone's preferences doesn't mean that you know them, but now you've created and designed a world that's catered to you and in some ways lived for you. And some examples you've been illustrating of access to information, limiting decision time, limiting choices based on what we know. you might, We already got it for you. And so you've been sort of directed down a certain path and you didn't look at the other paths that were open because the machine decided that that was the best option. And it may be where you land, but my point is they don't know you. They just know your preferences.
0: They don't know that the oatmeal chocolate chip cookie should be your preference. And it should have been right. there waiting for you because you should want the oatmeal chocolate chip cookie yeah. from Chick-fil-A because it's the best oatmeal <laughs> chocolate chip I, I
1: went way too long in my life before I tried cheddar and sour cream potato chips. <laughs> and they're my absolute favorite. But I was in my literally my 20s before I tried them. If my life was sort of lived in a manner, well, we know Billy doesn't like them because he's, he's never bought them before, I would not have my favorite potato chip now. So it does, I think, that where it moves into some, some... You ever had a Grippo? Grippos are the best barbecue chip, yeah, but not the best chip.
0: Period. Best chip, period. Yeah.
1: Well, we'll do a separate podcast on Grippos. <laughs> but the point is, I think there's a morality component, and when you get into machine learning and machine decision-making, and we've, we've talked about this some offline, but the self-driving car is probably one of the biggest question marks, I think, that you really get into here, you know? If the self-driving car is making decisions, programming the car to stay between the lanes and obey speed limits and read signs, I mean, my, my GPS will tell me what the speed limit is on a road I'm on, not because it can read the speed limit sign, but because it was programmed in building the map, right? We know the the speed limit on this road you're on is this many miles per hour. So a lot of that groundwork has been laid on the technology is being built and really built out. It's more of the judgment calls of decision-making where I think it's really sticky. So if something runs out in front of your vehicle, is it a dog? Is it a cat? Is it a child? If someone's pushing a stroller, is the stroller empty? Is the stroller full of baskets? And if you're forced with a terrible decision of hitting a person in front of you or wrecking the vehicle and hurting yourself, what does the vehicle choose for you? Does it choose to hit the person and protect the driver? Or does it presume to kill the driver that it's driving and protect the individual? And how you program that, how you come up with what a desirable outcome is of how to make these really challenging and hard choices in lexington kentucky where we live might be different than oregon and the united states rules would be very different from india's rules right i mean these are cultural issues they're very regional they're pocketed And to say that there's this universal AI moral that you could sort of program, I I think is a very, very difficult challenge. That's why I'd put me in the skeptic camp there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, at the end of the day, any AI system is going to require training. I think the more autonomous the systems become, the more sketchy and skeptical you maybe should be. There are some things that, you know, will take a long time, to automate, but you know, self driving cars are probably one of the more complex examples that are becoming mainstream. You, know, you see a number of features of self driving in cars today. Uh, we're not that far off, probably, from self driving cars, so um, and trucks, and I've trucks, yeah. yeah trucks. So, so, which that,
0: is particularly scary
2: because that's heavy equipment, oh, yeah, and that can do some serious damage. And it so, you know, it, it gets back to what's training the decision making of these systems. And and certainly the more autonomous and the nature of what they are, whether it's a truck or a trading model, the complexity requires it to be trained with more complex information. That is certainly something that is uncertain and probably it's probably warranted to be skeptical of it.
0: Yeah, I think the technical term of what we're speaking of is something called swarm artificial intelligence, which is this notion of a collective body of humans being asked a question and they use their collective decision making basically and sort of watch how the group think is making a decision and they may fight that decision one particular way or they may not, depending on how forceful they feel about that particular topic. And sort of the idea is to have this super organism, if you will, of decision making a process for that swarm AI. It speaks to what Billy was talking about. If a driverless car has got somebody in the crosswalk and it's a baby or it's a pregnant lady or it's a boy or a girl or What if it's two adult males or two adult females? Who is it choosing? You know, I watched a show about this, and it was pretty fascinating because basically that question was posed to a group of people, and then they used their devices in front of them to choose. And it wasn't just a straight line to one answer. It moved around between, you know, which one to choose if you had to hit one of those people. Who would you choose? And, of course, it ended up choosing the two males. But but anyway, it... That's, that's where the collective body, that swarm AI, if you will, that's what he's said. So that's where this, to Billy's point about the morality, that's that's how they're doing yeah, that, how, it. Yeah, because
2: how do you train morality and ethics? It's There's no data set that you can just import into a, a system and analyze and right. train it so it can be able to make its own decisions. So swarms are certainly one way that have been you know, posited to take complex moral and ethical questions and, and sort through what the answer to that is. But I do think you still have, as Billy pointed out, concerns about what the cultural differences and distinctions may be in that decision-making process and, and the kind of the universality of it. Can a swarm even provide an answer, you know, a, a universal truth to a complex ethical and moral question?
1: I think history, and again, you could say it's an isolated event, but I think World War II history in particular would argue that a group of people can be persuaded that something awful and evil is okay and acceptable. Yeah, right. (laughs) And this is where you get into, again, the ethical dilemmas of groups deciding what morality should be. Because groups, by and large, just because a group says something is acceptable doesn't make it acceptable,
2: unfortunately.
0: Right. How about something we alluded to early on this idea of the the deep learning and what you're seeing with some of the deep learning in the media right now is referred to as a deep fake which is basically an imitation game right i think it was in the 60s that what's his name alan uh, alan turing, alan turing. Alan? it was in the 50s yeah, the the 40s was it the 40s okay sorry so the turing test yeah which basically was can i pass the test of am i human or am i a computer right so you still have that today now, except in a much more sophisticated way, with watching a video clip of the president. And it sounds and looks just like the president, yet it actually is not him speaking and it's not his words. But it looks identical, this deep fake thing. That's pretty crazy.
2: Yeah, the, the melding together of you know a, an audio track with, with a video, AI technology is able to combine that very well this is certainly not something that I'm, I'm qualified or able, able to even really speak intelligently on. But another similar example I've seen is just image, kind of the signal processing within images. So, and I would encourage the, the listener and, and everybody to, to research this. But uh, there's, there's been this emergence or, or realization recently that I could take an image of you, I could take your headshot or Billy's corporate headshot. And if you have the knowledge and and tools to do so, without, without adjusting how that headshot looks to me when I'm looking at it with my human eye, adjustments can be made within the image to make you seem more believable or less believable, more likable, less likable, more trustworthy, less trustworthy, just simply by modifying the image at a layer where... I can't recognize it as a human. And again, I can't speak intelligently on the science. A little that. more attractive. Can you make me look more attractive? <laughs> Absolutely <as well>? not. <laughs> but, you know, that plays into the concept of deep fake as well, because if you think about a political opponent or a candidate putting their image on a billboard, on a sign, um, or on TV, how often during debates you see promos of candidates who are going to be participating in an upcoming debate, a media company could very easily modify those images to make one candidate look more likable than the other. And, and all that could be you know, just blown and extrapolated by this emerging technology and then the power of this technology. So you're
1: telling me we live in the age of fake news. So. <laughs> just real quick before we move on from that, since we're a financial services firm, from a financial perspective, this idea of false information appearing real just reminds me of the infamous flash crash and just how damaging bad information can be, right? We had a 9% drop in U.S. stocks in a period of 36 minutes from bad information, right? It was nothing more than bad information came out, not necessarily a flash crash, but there was another instance where a Twitter account, I think the U.S. White House Twitter account got hacked and put out a tweet that the president had been killed or in a plane crash or something. And it was very short-lived, and uh, it didn't cause the reaction that the flash crash did, but how damaging that information can be. And when you talk about a Twitter account putting out a false narrative or a faulty trade in the flash crash's sake where you can go back and look at the data and say, oh, okay, there really was nothing to see here and it's a quick head fake, move on, is frustrating and can jolt your confidence, which is a big deal in, in markets as we know. Confidence is it's everything it is markets. everything and it's yeah. hard to measure. When it's gone, it's gone. And when it's there, you don't you know it's hard to measure and quantify confidence. But when you're talking about shaking confidence in things like markets and investments and money, that's a big deal. But that's very different from a false video of the president coming out that looks like the president, that sounds like the president, announcing that we've moved to war or we're declaring nuclear war on a nation or some egregious event or act that would have a profound impact on markets. It's hard to undo that because it appears so real. There's a uh, nerve agent, nerve gas, if you will, that exists, and I remember reading about it one time and. One of the scientists that was involved in creating his quote was, it's one of the things we wish we could uninvent. invent mm-hmm. what, what will we look back on in 30 years and say, this is some technology you must wish you could uninvent?
0: Well, it's funny you say that term, because one of the things I was watching about artificial intelligence was this deep learning. It was quoted as saying, deep learning is our last invention. Yeah. Well, Billy, Mike, I, I think we've covered artificial intelligence pretty well today. Hopefully people have a grasp on you know what it is and, and really what it's not, how it might impact you on a everyday life basis, what its impact is in the world of finance, and, and really is it something to fear or not. So I appreciate your time and expertise in helping us understand artificial intelligence. It's an important topic, as I said, one that affects us whether we know it or not every single day. So hope that listeners have enjoyed the time here and learned something new and uh, we look forward to uh, tuning in next time thank you